Well, it's good to see everyone back from uh, Christmas celebrations and New Year. And with the New Year, we've started this new sermon series in the book of James. Now, in the New Testament, there are four James, Jameses that are mentioned. And by far, probably the, the James that wrote this book was uh, the brother of the Lord. And he, when he was alive, and when Jesus was alive, he didn't believe in Jesus. He didn't believe that Jesus was uh, the Messiah. Uh, but something happened to James when Jesus was resurrected. It tells us in 1 Corinthians 15 that Jesus appeared to James, and James believed that he was the Messiah, that he was the Lord. And so he became a believer, he was born again, and he became a very prominent church leader in Jerusalem in the first century. And he was a very spiritual man. He was known to have very knobbly knees. Now that might seem like a funny thing, but that was because he was known in church history to be on his knees all the time in prayer. He was a man of prayer. He was a very spiritual man. And he wrote this letter probably about AD 45 to AD 48. And at that time, there was a lot of persecution in Jerusalem to the Jewish Christians there. And one of the effects of that persecution was that they would have to flee Jerusalem and go into the surrounding areas like Samaria or Judea or Syria because they wanted to keep safe. But what they would find when they went into those areas was they would find that they were socially isolated, that persecution was there as well, and unfortunately, what they did was they began to allow the world to come back into their life and to come back into their churches. And this was the uh, situation that James was writing in when he wrote this letter. And he would have known many of these people that he was writing to personally. He was their pastor in Jerusalem. And his intentions in this letter is to basically say to them, look, I know you're having a difficult time but you've allowed the world to come back into your life and your faith is getting weaker and the evidence of it in your life is dim. And I want to call you through this letter back to Jesus, back to a restored relationship with him. Now, when you know that historical background of this book, it's very interesting because I would say that for the average UK Christian, they face a similar circumstance to these Jewish Christians back in the first century. It's true, isn't it? Christians are becoming more socially isolated in society. They're becoming more marginalized. Persecution is, I would say, on the rise for Christians in the UK. And when you look at uh, the average UK Christian, they've got a big dollop of worldliness in their lives, haven't they? I mean, let's be honest about that. We are bombarded with the world every day on the TV, on our computer screens, through social media. And to be honest, we find it difficult to resist because our faith is often quite weak. But also, we allow sometimes worldliness to come into our lives in the UK because many of us are going through difficult times. And that's a temptation that we can have when we are going through persecution or difficulties. We are tempted to go back to our old lives, to go back to the sin that we were involved in. This reality of going back to the world when we're going through difficult times is something you see throughout the whole Bible. 
in the nation of Israel. Do you remember in the desert when they were having difficulties, they complained and they said to Moses and Aaron, we want to go back to Egypt. We want to go back to the place where we were in bondage. They wanted to go back to their old lives, back to the world. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10 that those things were written down for us about Israel so that we don't face the same temptation and we can resist that temptation when it comes to us. Many UK Christians are facing this reality. They're having a difficult time, they're being marginalised and they're being tempted to go back to their old life. Maybe some of you in here this morning are feeling that temptation. Maybe some of you are backslidden this morning in sin because you've had a difficult time and you want to basically go back to the world because it's just easier. God has a message for you in here this morning if you're in that position, and that is that that's not what his will is for your life. The same spirit that wrote through James to these believers in the first century, calling them back to a restored relationship with Jesus to show the evidence of faith in their life again is the same spirit that's going to speak to us over the next few weeks and months. And I have to say to you, brothers and sisters, it's not going to be an easy process. Some of the stuff that's written in James is really difficult. It's quite harsh. But I'm also very excited by what the Lord wants to do in us over these next few months. So let's be open to that. Let's be open to what the Lord wants to speak to us as we go through this book. Today, the theme of our message really is our faith growing through trials. Because in this text, trials really comes out in most of the verses. Now, I've been a Christian for about 13 years now, and over that time, I've heard many sermons about trials that Christians go through. I've seen Christians go through trials. I've been through trials myself. I've heard lots of opinions about trials in the church. Some people overestimate trials. Some people underestimate them. And so it's very, very important for us as Christians to have a biblical, balanced view of trials in the life of a believer. And this is really what James presents to us today in this text. He starts off there in verse 2 by saying, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Now, in the way that he writes this, James is bringing up an assumptive truth. And what do I mean by that? Well, I mean that James assumed certain things about the people that he was writing to. And he assumed that they knew full well that they were going to go through trials. Trials being any difficulty that a Christian might face in their life. He assumed that they knew that they would be various, and the the Greek word there means many-coloured. So the trials would be different in their type, in their length, in their intensity. And he assumed that they knew they would fall into trials, which means that someone's going along quite nicely, and then suddenly they fall, and they're encompassed with this difficulty. This is what he assumed. He assumed that they knew this already. Now, when we consider that assumption, we have to, I think, cover two things to sort of lay a foundation for the rest of these verses. And the first thing is to ask the question, why do we as Christians go through trials? Why is that? I mean, we're the redeemed people of God, aren't we? 
We've seen that we're sinners. We've seen that Jesus is the Savior. We've put our faith in him. We have the very presence of God in us. So surely he can allow us to have an easy life. Why do we have to go through trials? You can answer that question, I think, in two ways. Firstly, you can answer it generally and also specifically. Generally, the reason why we as believers go through trials is because the cause of trials, that being sin, is still in the world today. When you look at the history of redemption, you see that in the beginning, God made the world, he made it perfect. There was no sin, there was no difficulty, there was no trouble. Adam rebelled against God, sin came into the world, and then since then, human history really has been, I would say, difficulty after difficulty after difficulty. And even though Jesus came into the world, God became flesh, and he went to the cross and died for the sins of the world, and he rose again on the third day, he still has not removed the presence of sin in this world. And he will not do that until he comes back a second time. And so because of that, because sin is still in the world, we, can, we, we experience trials because sin causes trials. But there are four specific reasons why we as Christians go through trials and difficulties. The first one is that we have a sinful nature still. I've taught this before, but I'll repeat it again. When we're born, we're born with the law of sin in our hearts. We have this tendency to do the wrong thing, to always be disobedient to God, to not even consider him, to not submit to him. But when we're saved, the Spirit comes into our, our hearts and the law of the Spirit comes into our heart and we begin to want to do the right thing. We begin to want to obey God, to submit to him, to live in his will. But that law of sin hasn't gone away. And the law of sin and the law of spirit, they battle against each other all the time for dominance in our lives. And that tension can produce suffering. Read Romans 7 and read Romans 8 and you'll know what I'm talking about. The battle there is often very difficult. The second reason why we specifically go through trials is because we have an enemy. His name is Lucifer, the devil. And he hates Christians. He hates the work of God and he wants to do whatever he can to stop the work of God in this world. And that means he will often be allowed by God to inflict trials upon us. The third reason is that we live in a world system that is completely and utterly against God. The sinful nature has produced that world system. But we are bombarded with that world system every single day of our lives and that can produce suffering. In 2 Peter chapter 2, it speaks of Lot, and it says that his righteous soul was tormented by the things that he saw around him in Sodom and Gomorrah. And it's the same for us. We can be tormented by the things that we can see around us, our righteous souls where the Spirit dwells. And then lastly, the fourth reason why we go through trials is because, listen, and this is the most difficult one to take, I think, we're called to go through trials. 
The New Testament speaks of the fact that Christians will share in the sufferings of Christ. That sufferings for us now are, in a sense, part of our inheritance. It speaks about that in uh, Romans chapter 8. These are the reasons why we, brothers and sisters, go through trials. And following on from that, it leads me to the second point I want to make before we get into our text. And that is, do you know in here this morning that you're going to go through trials in your life as a believer? Do you know that? Don't get me wrong, I'm not trying to say that your life has to be miserable, or you can't enjoy things, or God is not going to bless you immensely in your life as a believer, but do you know you're going to go through trials? And I bring this up because there is a large majority of the church today that teaches that Christians don't go through trials. They say things like, a Christian's going through a trial because he doesn't have enough faith. That a Christian's going through a trial because he's not paying enough money for the tithe. Or churches just, they skip over these verses and they don't speak about these realities. And this is why, brothers and sisters, what James has to say for us today is so important. Wherever you are in here this morning, whether you're going for a trial, whether you're not going for a trial, whether you're kind of blasé about Christians going through trials, James has such important things to say to us this morning that we should well listen to what the Spirit wants to speak through these verses. So there in verse 2, he's talking about this assumptive truth and he gives an exhortation in verse 2. He says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. What he's saying there is he wants us to think about our trials in a certain way. He wants us to think that our trials are a joyous thing or they're a glad thing, which is what that word joy there means. And what he's going to do for the rest of this text is he's going to explain the reasons why we should think that our trials are a good thing. In verse 3, he's going to show us that we should count it all joy when we fall into trials because our faith is proved through our trials. In the latter part of verse 3 and verse 4, he's going to show us that our faith grows through trials. And then in verse 5 to 8, he's going to show us that our faith sees the character of God more through our trials. But before we get into those reasons, I just want to labour upon the point that he says, count it all joy. Listen to me. He's not saying that he wants us to feel a certain way about our trials. He's saying he wants us to think in our minds a certain way. Brothers and sisters, many Christians in the world, they feel condemned because they don't experience the emotion of joy when they go through a trial. They either condemn themselves or they're condemned by people in the church or they're even condemned by ministers. But that should just not be the way it is. Listen, it's okay to experience negative emotions like grief when you go through trials as a believer. It's okay. In 1 Peter chapter 1, 
Peter acknowledged that the believers he was writing to were going through grief, and he doesn't condemn them for it. He gives them tools to deal with it. Even God himself, in Genesis 6, when he surveyed the world, he was grieved by the effect of sin upon the world. So listen, it is okay when you're going through a trial, whatever it is, to experience grief. But James is saying here he wants us to think, not feel a certain way. And there's a big difference. Because our emotions, they go up and down, don't they? Depending upon circumstances, depending upon the way we feel, or the way we are physically. I mean, I'll give you just a personal testimony of it. I woke up this morning, and honestly, I didn't feel like praying. I didn't really feel like reading the Bible. But that was because I was very, very tired. So in a sense, my tiredness was shaping my emotions. But what I needed to do was make the choice in my heart to say, I know I don't feel like praying, but I'm just going to do it. Our emotions can sometimes be very, very unstable. But listen, as born-again believers, we've been given the ability to make the choice in our minds about things, about the promises of God. And this is what James wants us to do with our trials. And he's doing it because this is what Jesus was like. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, it says the following. It says, looking onto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus, when he was alive, he went through a lot of trials. It says in the scriptures that Jesus was a man acquainted with grief, with sorrow. But when you look at Jesus' life, you see that there's a, a, a constancy there. He was always producing fruit. He was always being loving. He was always being gracious and kind. But yet he was going through lots and lots of trials. How did he do that? Well, I think one of the ways was because he thought about his trials in a certain way. And we see that here in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. Jesus saw the joy set before him. That was always there in his mind when he was going through trials, the biggest being when he was on the cross. And because that joy was set before him, he endured the cross, died for our sins, rose again on the third day. And he's now sat at the right hand of the throne of God. He was constant in his fruit because he thought about his trials in a certain way. And listen, brothers and sisters, this is what the Spirit wants to produce in us. He wants us to think about our trials in a certain way because they are definitely going to happen. So we come to the first reason why we should do that. And we see that in verse 3 where he says, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. Now notice there that he links our trials with this idea of testing of your faith. And the word for testing there is this idea of proving something. And it's not proving something to be wrong, it's this idea of proving something to be genuine, to be real. Peter speaks of a similar thing in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 7, where he says that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold, 
that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honour and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter there in this verse is speaking of the fact that when we go through trials, our faith is proved. It's proved to be genuine. They probably got this, I believe, from the teaching of Jesus when he taught about the parable of the sower. Do you remember in the parable of the sower, there was that soil that was rocky, and the seed came down and fell on that soil, and it sprang up. And then the sun comes up, scorches that shoot that comes up out of the ground, and it withers away and dies. And Jesus, in his explanation of that, he says that that soil is a bit like someone's heart who receives the word of God initially with joy, but because it doesn't take root in their heart, when trials come because of the word, they fall away and they don't follow Jesus. Notice what he's saying there. He's saying, look, if the word of God goes into someone's heart and they don't have saving faith, they're not born again, the gospel's not taken root in their lives, When a trial comes, they will fall away and they will not follow Jesus. But the opposite, listen, is true for the good soil. Remember with the good soil, the seed comes down, it takes root, the sun comes up and it produces a fruit 30, 60 and 100 times more. Why? Because the gospel has taken root in that person's heart. They're born again and they belong to God. And if you're, if you're in a place, as a, as a person, whatever trial you go through, I believe you will persevere through that trial because you have God with you in your hearts. Brothers and sisters, if there's anything, if there's any barometer of whether someone has truly genuine saving faith, it's trials, it's difficulties. If you believe in Jesus, if you're saved, if you're born again, Whatever trial you go through, God will use that trial to prove your faith to be genuine. If you're not born again, if the, if the gospel hasn't taken root in your heart, then I believe that trials will expose that and you'll fall away. And it will be shown that you weren't truly born again. Now, with that in mind, I have watched people very, very close to me in my life go through very difficult trials. And when I've been in that place, there have been times when I've thought, this is really serious. This is a really difficult situation. This situation is really on the edge of breaking this person. And when I've watched that and I've seen them come through that trial, they're a bit battered, they're a bit bruised, but they still believe in Jesus. They still believe that he saved them. They still believe that he's going to get them to heaven. That is such an encouragement, both to the person and it was to me. And this is the reason, listen, why God allows this to happen. God allows trials to prove our faith, to show us that there's nothing in the world, there's nothing that Satan can do There's nothing in your flesh, listen, that can take you away from him. There is nothing, if you truly belong to him, that can separate you from his love. And this is why he does this. And it's a a continual process that happens through your life. The more trials you go through, the more assured you are 
as you come through them, that you belong to God. It's an amazing thing. Incredible thing. And it's not just for the person, but it's for the believers around them. They watch this person go through something very difficult, and they come out the other side and they go, wow, that is amazing. God has done that. If he can do it for them, he can do it for me. But also, unbelievers, listen, are watching. When you go through a trial as a Christian, your unbelieving friends are saying, ha, now let's see what happens here. Are they still going to believe in God? Are they going to reject God? And you come through that trial, and they come up to you and say, wow, how on earth did you get through that? Why do you still believe in a God that would allow you to go through that kind of thing? And that gives an opportunity, listen, for the gospel. So God uses trials to prove our faith, to assure us, and he uses it to witness to unbelievers. And that is why we can count it all joy when we go through trials. That's the first reason. So he goes on at the end of um, verse 3 and verse 4, to bring up the second reason why we can count it all joy. And that is that our faith grows through trials. Notice he says there that when our faith is tested, it produces something. It produces patience. And that word there for patience is a Greek word that kind of implies you enduring and persevering through a very difficult circumstance and you're just going to keep on going. On and on and on and on. Now, I personally have been through trials before where I've seen that God is with me. I've seen that God has proved my faith, but the trial is, hasn't ended. I personally am, have gone through a trial for the last eight years, which doesn't in any way seem to end. You know, and when you're in that situation, you're like, okay, Lord, you know, I know you're with me. I know I belong to you, but this trial is really difficult and it's not ending. Can you just do something, please, Lord? (laughs) You know? And it's really hard when you're in that situation. And listen, the only thing that you can do when you're in a trial, you know you belong to God, you know that he's proved your faith, but it's still hard, you have to call out to him. You have to say, Lord, you've got to do something in this situation. If you don't do something, I am finished. This is so difficult that I'm going to fall apart if you don't intervene into this situation right now. And you know, when you call out to God like that, he produces this kind of patience. It's a work of the Spirit. One of the fruits of the Spirit is patience. This idea that you will just keep on going on, enduring and persevering through a trial that may last a lifetime because you know that God is with you and he's doing a good thing through that. That is what he's talking about here. He, he wants to produce this in all believers, this endurance to just keep on going on. It speaks about that in Romans 5, doesn't it? It says that the trials we go through, they produce perseverance and perseverance produces character. God wants to produce this kind of persevering character through our trials. And there's a reason for that. And that reason is in verse 4, where it says, but let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. So what we see here is that this patience has a work to do. 
and God wants it to be a perfect work. And that's to do with us becoming perfect and complete and lacking nothing. And so what we see here is that God uses this endurance to be part of how he grows our faith in our trials. Again, I'll bring back 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 7. If you could go back to that, please. It says that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to praise, honour and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now notice, I spoke about this verse a few minutes ago, but notice that in this verse, Peter links our faith to gold and he links the, tr- the, the trials of our faith with the testing of gold. Now, you may or may not know this, but in biblical times, when they wanted to purify something like gold, what they would do is they would heat it up so that it was melted. And they would heat it up, and the impurities of the metal would come to the surface of that metal, and whoever was purifying it would, would wipe it away, wipe the impurities away of that. And then they would look at the metal, and they would try and see if their reflection was in it. And if they didn't see their reflection, they'd turn the heat up even more so that more impurities would come to the surface and then they would wipe it away. And that process would continue on until they would look at the metal and they would see their reflection perfectly. And this is what God, listen, is doing through our trials. God turns the heat up in our lives, in our trials, to expose the impurities of our faith. The impurities come to the surface and through repentance and faith, God removes them out of our life. And that will carry on until we lack nothing there. It will carry on until we're perfect and complete. And listen, the only time where we are going to lack nothing is when we see Jesus face to face with him in his glory. So what that means is, is that God is saying to us through this verse that he could potentially use trials for the whole of our life to purify our faith. He wants to expose those impurities within us so that we become perfect and complete, that we are the perfect reflection of Jesus Christ. And listen, that is why we need endurance. We need patience to keep on going on because God can use trials for the whole of our life. But also trials may last a long time. We need that endurance. We need that patience to keep on going so that God will finish the work that he has started in us. If there was anyone in the scriptures that knows this reality, it was Job, wasn't it? You remember Job in the Old Testament? He was said to be the most righteous man in the East and God allowed him to go through really serious trials. And initially he was very shocked by those trials but as you read Job you see that he kind of learns this endurance, he learns this patience and he knew that God was going to do a good thing. I mean look at what it says in Job 23 verse 10. It says, this is Job speaking of the Lord, he says, but he knows the way that I take. When he has tested me, I shall come forth as gold. In Psalm chapter 66, Psalm 66, in verses 10 to 12, we see a similar thing. It says there, For you, O God, have tested us. 
You've refined us as silver is refined. You brought us into the net. You laid affliction at our backs. You have caused men to ride over our heads. We went through fire and through water, but you brought us out to rich fulfillment. These guys knew about the reality that trials were going to come, that they needed to endure, but at the end, God was going to do something good. He was going to bring a refinement to their lives where they just looked like God. This is why we can rejoice when we go through trials. Because we know that whatever we go through, however difficult it is, God is doing a good work. So wherever you are this morning in your life as a believer, whether you're going through a trial that seems all-encompassing or you're not, God uses these things for our good. And that's why we must think that it is a joyous thing when we go through them. Now, before we go on to our third and final reason, I just want to bring out an application in verse 4 that doesn't look that obvious in the English, but it's very obvious in the Greek. You, You see there where it says, but let patience have its perfect work. It says that you may be. Now, the way that's written in Greek is very specific, and it's a, a, a verb that kind of gives away this idea that it may or may not happen. So what James is really saying here in the Greek is he's saying, look, you guys need to let patience have its perfect work so that you may become perfect and complete, because if you don't, it may not happen. Now, some of you, as I'm saying that, might be thinking, well, hold on a minute, Adam. Doesn't the Bible teach that God saving us is his work alone? That him making us more like Jesus is his work alone? You'd be right. That is the teaching of the scriptures. But you have to understand what he's saying here in light of the doctrine of salvation as presented in the New Testament, or the doctrine of The technical term is soteriology. And I'm going to try and give you a very uh, summarized version of this. When you look at the New Testament, the New Testament teaches that there are three phases to our salvation. The first phase happens when we believe in Jesus. We put our faith in him. We see that we're sinners. We repent. We're born again. And at that stage of our salvation, God forgives us for all of our sin, past, present, and future. He frees us from the penalty of sin, which is hell. That is our, you could say, our justification. God sees us as being innocent and righteous before himself. The next phase, the second phase, starts as soon as we're born again. And the Spirit begins to work in our lives He begins to expose things in our hearts, begins to expose sin, begins to deal with us about certain things, and through repentance and faith, we are made more like Jesus. And that goes on for the whole of our life here on earth. It is the phase of what we would call sanctification, where we're being freed from the power of sin in our lives. And the third and final stage is when we see Jesus face to face, when we go to be with him when we see him in his glory, when we receive our glorified bodies, that is when we are freed, listen, from the presence of sin. That is when we are, as Jesus Christ, perfect. 
That is what we would call our glorification. They are the three phases of our salvation as Christians. And it's very, very important to see that what James is referring to here when he says that you may be perfect and complete, he is referring, listen, to the second phase, our sanctification. As we are being made perfect and complete to be made more like Jesus. And it's this phase of our salvation, listen, that we can grieve the Spirit, we can quench the Spirit, we can slow down our sanctification, and we may even bring it to a a close for a season if we do not allow patience to have its perfect work. This would look like this. If you're going for a trial and you say, stuff God, I've had enough of him. I'm going to go back to the world. That would be not allowing patience to have its perfect work. If we became angry and bitter at God in, in our trials, that, I believe, would be not allowing patience to have its perfect work. And when that happens, we can slow down our sanctification and even stop it. But listen, this is very important. That does not affect our eternal salvation. It does not affect our position with the Lord in heaven because, listen, you are justified before you begin to be sanctified. And justification is a once and for all thing, forever. As soon as you put your faith in Jesus, you are justified once and for all and forever. But if we do this in verse 4, it does affect our experience of God in this world. It, it, It sort of quenches our usefulness. If we're not living in the Spirit, if we are grieving the Spirit and quenching Him and stopping this sanctification, then we become less useful. And so there is a consequence. Maybe you're in that place this morning. Maybe you've come here and you know that you're living in unrepentant sin. You know that you've gone back to the world. I want to tell you, brother or sister, that is going to affect your life as a believer. It's going to affect your experience of God and your usefulness for God. So turn back to him today. Turn from that sin and receive his forgiveness. So quickly, as we go into our last section, verses 5 to 8, we see the last reason why we must count it all joy when we go through various trials, and that is that we see the character of God more through our trials. Notice he says there in verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom. Now, I believe what he's saying there is that there are times when we go through trials where we just do not know what to do. Have you ever been there before? Where you're going through a difficulty and you're like, Lord, I don't know what to pray. I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. I don't know what to say to this person. I don't know how to feel about this situation. I'm just in a place where I am lacking wisdom. And he says here that if you're in that place, ask, let him ask of God. Why? Well, because God wants to give wisdom liberally. He wants to give it openly and without any um, hindrance. He wants to give it without reproach, which means he wants to give it in a way where he doesn't see any fault in your request. And then he wants to give it to all, which means that he doesn't have any favorites. There's no favorites in the kingdom of God. God shows no partiality. He gives to all. And if you do that, well, it will be given to you. If you ask God when you're in a situation where you lack wisdom, 
for him to give you wisdom, he will give it to you. Now this shows us something about God that we must consider for a few minutes because it is just quite incredible. And that is that God wants to give mere human beings of his wisdom, of his knowledge, and of his understanding about all things. You see this reality in Proverbs chapter 2, verses 1 to 8. It says there, My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commands within you, so that you incline your ear to wisdom and apply your heart to understanding, yes, if you cry out for discernment and lift up your voice for understanding, if you seek her as silver and search for her as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk uprightly. He guards the path of of justice and preserves the way of his saints. Hallelujah. But what this teaches us is that God has wisdom. And he wants to give it to us as his people. He wants to give it to human beings, I would say, as well. And he wants to do that through us asking him for it. And this is a reality that comes up over and over again in Proverbs. God has wisdom. He wants to give it. If you ask for it, he will give it to you. And he's done this throughout the whole history of the world. He's done it generally in his common grace to all man. I mean, think about this. Every discovery that's been made by man, has that come from man? No, it's come from God. God in his common grace to man has given them understanding, knowledge and wisdom because they've sought for it. They don't deserve it. It's not because of their merit. It's because of God's common grace to all human beings. But then he's done it specifically to the people of God, from Adam to Abraham to Isaac to Jacob to David to Solomon. He gave specific wisdom, understanding and knowledge to point to the ultimate wisdom found in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what he's done, brothers and sisters. And really what we see here in verse 5 is really a summarized, condensed teaching of the whole of Proverbs and the whole testimony of God for the whole history of the world up until this point. It's incredible how the Spirit does that in one verse, isn't it? But, brothers and sisters, there's something even more remarkable about this. And you see that in Proverbs 3, verses 13 to 15. Please listen to these verses. These verses are amazing. He says, Happy is the man who finds wisdom, and the man who gains understanding, for her proceeds are better than the profits of silver, and her gain than fine gold. She is more precious than rubies, and all the things that you may desire cannot compare with her. Do you get that? Whatever you desire in the world, whatever you desire to have, does not compare at all to the wisdom of God that he can give you. Let that sink in, that God wants to give you that wisdom and it's better than anything that you can desire. Now I want you to think about something with this in mind. Think about the last week and think about the number of times in your heart you've specifically asked God for wisdom in your life. If you do it all the time, every day, can we have a discussion afterwards? Because I'd like to learn how, that, how you do that discipline. 
But the reality is, is that we often don't do this. The sinful nature takes us away from God, takes us away from asking God for help and asking for his wisdom. And so we end up going for a week struggling and kind of burdened. And it's because we haven't gone to God to ask for his wisdom. This is what we do. And listen, this is why, this is very important for you to see, this is why God allows us to go through trials to show us this, because he desperately wants us to see this characteristic about himself. He will allow us to go through trials so that we're forced into a position to cry out to him. So that we experience of this wisdom, this understanding and this knowledge and see that he wants to give us his best. Do you know that? That God wants to give his best to you as a believer in here this morning. And he will do whatever it takes, listen, in your life to get you to know that to get you to understand that. I mean, that's so upside down, isn't it? The world teaches that we see the best of someone in the best of situations. But this verse, listen, is teaching that you can see the best of God in the worst of your situations. I just find that an incredible truth. It's amazing that the Lord wants to show us just how good he is, just how gracious and merciful and generous he is to us in the worst of our situations. And this is why we must count it all joy when we fall into trials. Now he finishes off this section in verses 6, 7 and 8 with a very specific, uh, he deals with something very specific that was going on in the churches uh, at the time in the first century. He says there in verse 6, but let him ask in faith with no doubting For he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Now he starts off in verse 6 by saying that when we ask God for wisdom, we must ask in faith, which means that we must ask believing that God is there and that God is able to give us that wisdom. And he says that we must do it without doubting, which means that we must not do it with any lack of confidence. We must be completely confident that God will do what he said he's going to do. He's going to give us wisdom. He then says that when someone doesn't do that, when they they do doubt, they are like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. And then in verse 8, he goes on to sort of further that. He says that he's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Now, I personally believe that what James is referring to here is a believer, is someone who is born again because he's writing to born-again believers and wants to address them on something. But he's describing someone who is, um, has divided interest or divided allegiance. That's what that word double-minded man means. It's describing someone that's got one foot in the church or one foot in the kingdom of God and one foot in the world. One day they want to live for God, they want to be in submission to Jesus and the Spirit. The next day they want to just live in the world. They want to live in a worldly way. And because of that, they are unstable. They don't know where they're going. One minute they're going this direction, the next minute they're going that direction. And that's why he describes it, they're like a wave. I don't know if you've seen a wave come in on the beach, but it comes in one direction. If the wind changes, it goes the other direction. 
Now, I believe that many of the Jewish believers that he was writing to were falling into this trap. They were going through difficult times and they were being tempted to go back to the world and some of them were living this life of being double-minded, being unstable. They were like the wave tossed and driven by the wind. And he wants to address them on something specific. And he says that in verse 7. He says, For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. Now this verse almost seems like a contradiction, doesn't it? Because we've just said that if you ask God for wisdom, he'll give you, he'll give you that. But now he's saying that this person, if he asks God, he's not going to receive anything. Why has the change taken place? Well, I think that the only way that you can describe this is using an analogy. And the analogy goes something like this. Imagine I buy one of my sons a Lego kit for Christmas. And I buy it so that it's more complicated than he's been used to in, in, in the past. And I'm doing that with the intention that he will ask me for help and that I will spend time with him and that we'll get to know each other more and he will be blessed. So we're there on his birthday or Christmas and he's opening his present and he opens it and sees it's Lego and he says, wow, thanks for that, Dad, that's really great. I'm going to start getting on with this now. So he gets all the bits out, he starts making it and he's struggling. He doesn't know what to do. He doesn't know where to put this bit or that bit. And I'm there sort of saying, well, son, you know, I'm here. You know, I've done this before. You can ask for help. And he turns around and says, well, Dad, yeah, you know, yeah, I guess I could ask you for help. But really, I don't believe that you can help me. And really, I don't believe that you want to help me. And so I'm in that situation and I'm grieved. I still love my son. The relationship hasn't changed. He's still my son. I'm still his father. But I'm grieved. And I'm like, okay, son, if that's the way you want it, that's the way you're going to have it. And this is, I believe, what God is like when we are like this. God does not want to produce robots. He wants to produce people that he has a relationship with, that have responsibility. And if we are in a situation where we lack wisdom and we go to God and we say, Lord, please help me, but I don't really believe you can and I don't really think you want to, God is grieved by that. And God, because he, I believe, respects, in a sense, our ability to have responsibility, he will allow things to be the way we decide them to be. And so we will not receive help in that situation. And this was so serious because James is saying, look, you guys, you need to realize you're in this boat, you're double-minded, you're unstable, you're like that wave. You need help from God, but he's not going to help you because you don't believe he's going to do it. So don't be in that situation. I want to call you back. Turn from being that double-minded man. Turn from being unstable. Put your faith again, renewed in the Lord Jesus Christ. Be restored in him. Know him. Know that characteristic that he will help you whenever you ask. So, brothers and sisters, we've seen today these three reasons why we must count it all joy when we fall into various trials. That our faith is proved, our faith grows, 
and our faith sees the character of God more. And as we end this message, we must keep Jesus at the center. We must reflect on him. That Jesus, when he was on the earth, cried out to the Father when he was in difficulty. You remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, he was suffering so much there that he sweated blood, that his soul was grieved to the point of death. What did he do? He didn't go away and try and think about, on, think about it on his own. He called out to the Father and he received help from the Father. And this is what God wants for us in our lives. He wants us to be like Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane. With the reality that there's a joy set before us that cannot be broken. You, brothers and sisters, have a glorious future ahead of you. You have a joy set before you that cannot be broken by sin. And so when you're in your trials and you're calling out to God, remember, as Jesus did, the joy that's set before you. And you, I believe, will walk through any trial that you go through in your life. Now, I, I want to address people in here who don't know Jesus as we close. And that is that people in the world go through trials just as Christians do. But the difference with someone that doesn't believe in Jesus is they do not have someone to go to for help, ultimately. They do not have joy set before them like Jesus did. But the good news is, is that you don't have to remain in that place. You can become a child of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And I can't guarantee that your life is going to be very easy. I can say that you will have trials, but I can say that those trials will be used of God to bless you and to ultimately lead you to the glory in the future. So if you're in that place, if you sense that you've wronged God through your sin, Jesus died for you. Put your faith in him and you will be saved.